Broadcasting from Rancho Cucamonga, California, this is A History of California. Welcome to A History of California. This is the first episode of what will hopefully be a long-lived, open-ended passion project. My name is Jacob, your host and incurable nerd of all things related to the history, ecology, geography, geology, or whatever else happens to interest me in my lifelong home state of California. This episode, we will introduce the setting of our unfolding story, the place and space now known as California, and ask... What even is a California? The 39 million people who live here and the 7.7 billion who don't could give you that many different answers. The most obvious answer is that it's a U.S. state, number 31 of 50 to be admitted into the Union, which happened in 1850. But both before and after 1850, California existed as something different than just another state inside the USA. First off, California is out there. Both in that it's far away and it's far out, man. The state is located 1,300 miles away from the nearest major North American national capital city, buffered from the rest of the continent by daunting mountain ranges and no fewer than three identifiably separate, expansive deserts. But this geographic insularity didn't isolate California from the people who came to seek it out. This promised land at the end of the road or you can strike it rich in the Sierra Goldfields or in Silicon Valley tech company startups. The constant in-migration of people into California since the end of the last ice age created something culturally distinct. And to this day, California remains a target and destination for all manners of dreamers, schemers, entrepreneurs, frontier explorers, and immigrants, the secular, the religious, and the downright cultish, and every kind of carnival bonker, carn artist, Crank, kook, crazy, weirdo, outcast, and cast-off has found a home here. The state's unofficial motto says California is a state of mind. Open-minded, generally optimistic, bathed in perennial golden sunlight, or perhaps warped by too much exposure to the sun's UV rays. Secondly, as a recognized place, you can find California on the margins. In a physical sense, it clings to the western edge of North America, precariously shot through with cracks in the surface of the earth itself. But California is also on the margins in an ordinal sense, usually at the top or bottom of any ranking or listing of the 50 states. It's 100 million acres large, the third largest in the U.S. behind Alaska and Texas. California is also home to more people than any other U.S. state, helping to build an economy that in 2019 generated an outflow of $3.2 trillion dollars which is not only the most productive state economy in the U.S., but would also be the fifth largest economy in the world if California were an independent, sovereign country. More billionaires live in California than any other U.S. state, but California also has the largest unhoused population in the country. And though the poverty rate is right at the median, in a state with a population of 39 million, you still end up with the largest amount of people in the U.S. living below the poverty line. 
California's large population is also more racially and ethnically diverse than any other U.S. state, filling out a wide array of climates and terrains that are, of course, more diverse than any other state in the Union. Externally distinct from the outside and swirling with diversity on the inside, California does few things in moderation. Its capitalist economic development is not a story of steady growth, but a series of booms that started with the gold rush, continuing through to the present, punctuated by punishing downfalls. California's aqueducts and canals transport enough water to flood 40 million acres in a foot deep, making possible an agricultural sector that generated nearly $50 billion in 2018 by being the leading producer of 75 different crop products in the U.S., including producing more than 99% of the U.S.'s almonds, artichokes, dates, figs, garlics, raisins, kiwis, olives, pistachios, and walnuts. Perhaps they were inspired by California's natural environment, which contains both the highest peak and lowest depth inside the continental U.S., as well as the three tallest, largest, and oldest tree species on Earth. The ground itself can shift in sudden, sometimes violent disruptions that can devastate entire metropolitan areas all at once. Sometimes the rains come and create floods of biblical proportions. Other times the rains don't come, inflicting years of tribulating droughts on the California landscape. Its political history includes both experiments in left-wing radicalism and the birth of the modern cult of Ronald Reagan's conservatism. California is a state filled to the brim with superlatives, with an identity and personality that is too big to be contained to a single introductory episode of this humble podcast. Or, as Bart Simpson once said, in conclusion, it's a land of contrast. Thank you. But in attempting to sketch it out, we haven't really yet answered, what is a California? Well, here's my answer. California is the socio-political geographic entity created as a result of contact between the North American and Pacific tectonic plates at 32 to 42 degrees latitude north of the equator. Okay, so what the hell does that mean? Well, to start, we're going way back in time to the Cretaceous period, 130 million years ago, when dinosaurs had the run of the place and the North American and Pacific plates had not yet made contact. The Earth's crust is broken up into giant chunks, called tectonic plates, which instead of staying in place, move around on the liquid mantle beneath, separating away from, or colliding with, or grinding alongside other tectonic plates, like people bumping into each other on inner tubes in an overcrowded lazy river. Preventing the North American and Pacific plates from hooking up was the Farallon Plate, slowly moving eastward under the ocean. Over tens of millions of years, where the east-moving Farallon plate met the west-moving North American plate, the Farallon was forced beneath the North American plate in a process called subduction. And like a geek getting their head forced into a toilet by a bully, the poor Farallon was subducted under the North American plate and back into the liquid mantle beneath. This subduction did two important things. One, as the Farallon skidded its way beneath North America, it left behind shavings and scrapings of rock that accumulated at the western edge of the continent, forming distinct layers of rock called terrains that extended the coastline outwards. And two, some pieces of the Farallon that were melted into the mantle rose back upwards, like bubbles in a giant lava lamp, creating gigantic blocks of oceanic granite called batholiths that, through later tectonic squeezing and pressure, 
would form the modern Sierra Nevada, Transverse, and Peninsular mountain ranges. 25 to 30 million years ago, with the dinosaurs now long gone, the western edge of North America experienced a dramatic shift. The Farallon Plate central section was now completely subducted under North America, breaking what remained of the Farallon into two and bringing the North American Plate into contact with the Pacific Plate for the first time. Instead of one being forced under the other, the North American and Pacific Plates changed directions and started moving alongside one another, the Pacific moving towards the northwest and the North American moving to the southeast. The new border between the two survives today as the San Andreas Fault Line. The northern remnant of the old Farallon, now called the Juan de Fuca Plate, continues to be subducted under North America, creating a belt of mountains and volcanoes extending north from California that we now call the Cascades. Back down south, the northwest movement of the Pacific Plate sheared off most of a clump of mountains that ran parallel to the coast. Because these mountains, however, were still partially tethered to North America, instead of detaching off completely, they rotated clockwise 90 degrees, like a clock hand moving from 6 to 9. Because they no longer run parallel to the coastline, but intersect with it at an almost perpendicular angle, these ranges became known as the transverse ranges of Southern California, overlooking the daytime smog and nighttime glittering lights of the Los Angeles Basin. But being located 32 to 42 degrees north of the equator is important not just because that's where the Farallon Plate got totally domed by the North American Plate, but also for climatic reasons. Most of the world's deserts are about 30 to 40 degrees north or south of the equator due to a circular movement of air called a Hadley cell. Warm air near the Earth's equator rises, dumping its moisture in the form of rain until it hits an elevation around 11 miles above sea level. Pushed aside by incoming rising air, this now high-elevation cold air travels to the north and south. Now denser as well as colder, the air descends back to Earth's surface after covering about 30 degrees of latitude away from the equator, drying out the land and living things below and creating desert conditions. Though the air will eventually make its way back to the equator and re-moisturize, the deserts remain constantly blow-dried by incoming air from high in the sky. The result of all of this being that California includes parts of and is mostly surrounded by North America's deserts. But most of California isn't desert, thanks again to the interplay of the North American and Pacific Plates, not just creating mountains and valleys and fault lines, but also creating an 840 mile long coastline. Similar to the air, water in the ocean also moves in circular currents, and off the coast of California, water flows southward from Alaska down to Baja, with this particular stage of the circle known as the California Current. Storms will also hitch a ride on the California Current, heading south by southeast, dumping rain and snow on otherwise parched latitudes, as well as generating cooling summer fog and generally moderating air temperatures. But since California is also full of mountainous terrain, where rain and snow is actually dropped is also affected by something called the rain shadow effect. When storm clouds have to climb uphill to get over and around mountain ranges, they dump most of their precipitation before reaching the top, creating a dry area on the other side of the mountain called a rain shadow. The coastal side of the tall mountains, 
already moderated by the ocean's temperature, ends up being the beneficiary of all that concentrated rainfall, while the deserts on the inland side of the mountain swing from sweltering heat to frigid cold and always remain dry. When these movements of earth, air, and water come together, they create an identifiable and distinct place on our planet called California. Its climate as a result is largely Mediterranean, cool, rainy winters alternating with warm or hot, dry summers. Not all of California falls under a Mediterranean climate, but all the area inside the U.S. with this climate is inside the state's boundaries. Other parts of the state are better described as drier, semi-arid steppe environments. The taller mountain ranges feature alpine conditions at their crests and peaks. And of course, there are the aforementioned deserts. With the basic ingredients of coast, mountain, valley, and desert all in place, now we can run a quick tour of the Golden State as it exists today, year 2021, to help get a handle on where things actually are, rather than what they look like in a general sense. California is a big-ass state, so this will be broken down into stages. Its 100 million acres is fit into an oblong shape that runs 770 miles from north to south and roughly 250 miles from wherever the western coastline happens to be to the eastern state boundaries. California also looks as if it tilts to the left, like it's nonchalantly leaning back against the Pacific Ocean, far too cool to be a square defined by right angles. A relief map shows the state's mountains are squeezed into this space in a sort of skinny Q shape. I got that Q-shaped idea from Kent G. Lightfoot in Otis Parrish's book, California Indians and Their Environment. And because it's extremely convenient for our purposes, we'll be referencing that skinny Q shape while starting in the center of the state and spiral around and outward from there. If you look at California from a satellite in orbit, the most obvious feature is the long, broad valley and the center of a ring of mountains that forms the big loop of our skinny Q pattern. Millions of years of erosion filled in what used to be a massive extension of the ocean, depositing deep layers of hyperfertile soil that underlays what we now call the Central Valley. It has roughly the proportions of a pea pod, running in a northwest-southeast orientation, mirroring the rest of the state. A handful of medium-sized cities act as regional economic centers, the three biggest being Sacramento, Fresno, and Bakersfield. Sacramento is also presently the political administrative capital of the state of California, though as we'll see, it's hardly the biggest or wealthiest city in the state. The Central Valley, however, is the agricultural heart of California, growing 230 different crops on 7 million acres of land requiring irrigation from canals and groundwater pumps to get these crops through the long, dry summers. The Central Valley is drained by two large rivers, the Sacramento in the northern third and the San Joaquin in the middle third that flow towards each other before meeting at the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta and emptying out into San Francisco Bay. The two big rivers are fed by tributaries running downhill away from the Sierra Nevadas and westward to flow into the big rivers. Taken altogether, the combined river system looks like the two antlers of a deer. The tributaries are the antler spines, the Sacramento and San Joaquin, the two main branches that meet at the deer's skull, 
which in this metaphor would be the delta. East of the Central Valley is the largest and tallest mountain range in California, the Sierra Nevada. These majestic granite behemoths run between 11,000 and 14,000 feet in elevation, acting as a gigantic barrier between California and the arid highlands of Nevada and Utah's Great Basin. Different ecological systems and habitats exist depending on how far up or down the slope you are, or whether you're on the east or west side of the mountains, but the Sierra Nevada are home to the largest trees in the world, the monstrous conifers known as giant sequoias. U-shaped valleys carved by ancient glaciers attract and inspire travelers and tourists from all over the world, especially in those areas fortunate enough to be spared from the vagaries of natural resource extraction by being located within a protected space such as Yosemite National Park. The foothills at the lower elevations, however, were not spared from the worst ecocidal and genocidal effects of the mass craze for shiny yellow metal that occurred in the late 1840s and jet-fueled California's economic growth. Extending south from the Sierra Nevada are the lower elevation Tehachapi Mountains, acting again as a gateway to the Central Valley, except this time fencing off the Mojave Desert to the southeast. Directly north of the Sierra Nevadas, in the northeastern corner of the state, are the Modoc Plateau and the southern edge of the Cascades. The Modoc Plateau is sparsely populated, high elevation, made up of accumulated lava flows, and remains mostly home to ponderosa and juniper pine and mule deer. West of the plateau are the Cascade Mountain Range, a product of the same ongoing subduction process that ate up the central section of the old Farallon tectonic plate, resulting in the presence of active volcanoes like 10,000-foot-tall Lassen Peak and 14,000-foot-tall Mount Shasta. Taken together, the Tehachapis, the Sierra Nevadas, and the Cascades form the right half of our skinny queue of mountains. The top left corner of our skinny queue, and in the northwestern corner of California, are the Klamath and North Coast Ranges. A bit shorter than the Cascades and Sierra Nevada, the Klamath's cooler version of the classic Mediterranean climate supports pine forests including some of the last old-growth forests in the state outside the Sierra Nevada. These cool, rainy winters also help feed the Trinity and Klamath Rivers and their routes to the Pacific, which in turn support either massive salmon runs or hydroelectric power generation, depending on the priorities of whoever's in charge up there. Making our way down the left side of the skinny queue, you hit the North Coast Ranges, running parallel along the coast and home to the giant sequoia's taller, skinnier cousin, the Coast Redwood. This section of the state for decades was also the epicenter of cannabis growth in California, with the specific triad of Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties saddled with the moniker the Emerald Triangle. Traveling further south along the Pacific coast, we hit the first major population center of the tour, the San Francisco Bay Area. The Bay Area is a conglomeration of three big cities, San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose, linked together by interconnecting suburban development that wraps around the combined San Francisco-San Pablo Bay complex like a giant urbanized donut. The Bay is attached to the Pacific Ocean by a short umbilical cord of water known as the Golden Gate, over which the iconic Golden Gate Bridge connects the city at the northern end of the San Francisco Peninsula with the affluent communities in Marin County 
and the fine wine-producing Napa and Sonoma Valleys at the north end of the bay. Across the bay and east of the city is the town, Oakland, along with the hippie academics of Berkeley and outerlying suburbs on the far side of the low-lying Berkeley Hills. The South Bay is dominated by San Jose, sprawling across the formerly agricultural floor of what was once known as the Santa Clara Valley, but in the last 30 years has been transformed by deindustrialization and computer chips into the now world-famous Silicon Valley. Extending northwest from San Jose is the San Francisco Peninsula, the northern quarter or so consisting of the actual city and county of San Francisco, the rest home to a corridor of suburbs and one overrated research university. Heading south out of the Bay Area, but sticking to the coast, we arrive at the Central Coast Ranges. Similar to the North Coast, the Central Coast Ranges run roughly parallel to the north-south running shoreline, with long valleys in between drained by rivers. The longest such valley in the Central Coast is the Salinas Valley, a major production center of large vegetables and other fruit and vegetable crops drained by the Salinas River, which empties out at Monterey Bay. Along the coast, smaller inlets such as Morrow Bay and San Luis Obispo support beach economies linked by the ever-scenic California Highway 1, weaving its way along the coast and soaring over the rugged coastal cliffs at Big Sur. At this point, we've completely surrounded the Central Valley in a ring of mountain ranges, completing the looping part of our skinny Q shape. But a Q isn't just a loop. It also has that little tail below it. For California, that tail is the transverse ranges, stretching from Point Conception on the western shore on an east-west orientation that gradually distances from the coast until it's almost 125 miles inland and well into the desert. Below the transverse ranges, and beneath the San Gabriels in particular, grew the Los Angeles Metro Complex that today houses about 45% of the state's population, and is really second only to New York in its sheer size, economic output, and cultural impact, and shares with New York the distinction of having two pro sports teams in every major sport. Los Angeles itself is a rather odd-shaped blob on the map, but it remains merely the largest patch in an immense quilt of fragmented regions and sub-regions and sub-sub-regions, whose uniformly medium to low-density urban form carpets nearly every flat area and a good portion of the hills as well. Here, in Southern California, the Mediterranean climate gets warmer. Fewer rainy days and foggy days are traded for 335 days of sunlight a year, adding a camera-friendly golden glow to both the Hollywood glamour and staggering wealth inequality. With sunglasses on and maybe after stopping at an In-N-Out, we hit the southernmost portion of California's western coast, San Diego Harbor. Drawn by a natural harbor that would entice any naval military strategist, San Diego was the site of the first attempts at white colonization inside California, and since then has consistently featured some degree of military presence of whichever country happens to hold it at the time. That is currently... Uh, oh yes, the United States of America, which currently operates five separate naval facilities and a base and separate air station for the Marines as well. East of San Diego, and forming some of the boundaries between the SoCal subregions at the northern end, are the Peninsular Ranges. These mountains form the 930-mile-long backbone of the Baja Peninsula, 
which is a chunk of land we won't be getting into on this intro tour. Much like the Sierra Nevada and transverse ranges north of them, the peninsular ranges act as giant mountainous gates separating coastal California from the inland deserts. Which brings us to the final part of our tour, the deserts. I use the plural deserts because there are technically three of them. Directly east of San Diego, on the other side of the peninsular ranges, is the Sonora Desert. The parts of which that fall inside the state's boundaries include the surprisingly heavily agricultural Imperial Valley and vacation-friendly Coachella Valley, also home to a famous annual springtime music and arts festival. Joshua Tree National Park straddles the border between the Sonora Desert to the south and the Mojave Desert to the north, known to us in the Southland as the Low and High Deserts. Aside from the difference in elevation, the low-lying Sonora and Uplands Mojave Deserts are also distinguished by different plant communities. For example, the Joshua Tree acting as an indicator of where the Mojave Desert actually exists. Most people experience the Mojave by driving as fast as they can through it on the 15 freeway trying to get to Vegas or back to LA. North of the Mojave and east of the Sierra Nevada is the Great Basin, although really only the westernmost slice of the Great Basin is inside the modern state boundaries of California. The steep eastern slopes of the Sierra Nevada overlook the region's ski resorts and hot springs, as well as the Owens Valley, the victimized source of faraway LA's water supply. The eastmost boundary of the state is the Colorado River, emptying out into the Gulf of California, but outside the state's southern international line with Mexico, established after the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848. And so, that's California. Or as much as I can think to introduce all at once right here at the beginning. If you made it this far, thanks for listening. Next time, we will start at the beginning and discuss the indigenous prehistory of California here on... A History of California.